Good morning. My topic is the grace and mercy of God, God being gracious and merciful. And I'm glad we're talking about this. It's a topic that I think maybe sometimes gets neglected because it's sold indulgences for sin. You can sin as much as you want to, as long as you got a little cash to donate to the local parish. You could pay for the pardon of sins that you already committed, and then you could even pay for sins that you planned to commit. And unfortunately, sometimes the same logic gets applied to God's grace and mercy. You can do whatever you want to do, because God is gracious. In some ways, though, the modern view of grace is even better than indulgences because God pays the bills. If we're not careful, as we deal with God's grace and mercy, we can become like spoiled children spending our parents' money. God's grace doesn't work that way. God's grace, when we have received all of its fullness, leads us to repentance. God's grace actually breaks us of our sinfulness and selfishness. And if his grace doesn't have that effect on us, there's a chance that we don't understand God's grace, or worse, haven't yet experienced it. So for our study this morning, let's start by establishing a biblical definition for God's grace. You've probably heard this definition before. Grace is commonly defined as the unmerited favor of God. And I agree that that's a biblical definition. But again, if we're not careful, we might start to think of grace as some kind of impersonal spiritual force that just bleaches out our sins in the same way that you put bleach on a stain or antibiotic on a wound. That's not what grace is. Grace is not an impersonal spiritual force. Grace is quite personal. Grace is a personal attribute of God. It's a manifestation of God's character. The words gracious and merciful that we'll be referring to today describe the nature of God. Not these impersonal spiritual forces that save us, but the personal nature of God. His personality, his behavior, his sovereign will. God gives grace because that's who he is, because he wants to. God gives mercy because his nature is merciful, because he wants to give mercy, because that's who he is. I think you know this, but grace and mercy are not interchangeable words. There's a reason, though, that they're often mentioned together. It seems like in the Bible, grace is commonly used as a comprehensive word that encompasses many related attributes of God. God's mercy that's withholding consequences and punishment that is deserved. That mercy is really a manifestation of his grace, of his unmerited favor. God's patience is also another channel within his grace, within his unmerited favor. God's forgiveness, his kindness, his benevolence, those are all manifestations of God's grace, his unmerited favor. And so for that reason, most of today, I'll be talking about these attributes of God, including his mercy, his kindness, his patience, all really packaged within the idea of grace. 
And remember that defining the concept of grace is not just defining a word. When we're defining grace, again, we are defining the personality of God. And I admit this makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm here to tell you what God is like. We're talking about the nature of the creator of the universe. I'm uncomfortable telling you what another person is like. I feel like they should do that for themselves. But that's what we're doing today is describing the nature, the personality, and the character of God. And when God declares himself, he says about himself that he is merciful and gracious. That's who he is. Grace describes how God feels towards us. He likes us. This is an important thing to remember because I don't know that everybody feels that way. Not everybody realizes that God likes you. When God looks at you, he rejoices over you. He might be angry at you sometimes too, but he prefers to like you. He prefers to rejoice over you. Grace also is an idea that describes how God is inclined to treat us. God prefers to bless us. Sometimes we might forget this when bad things start happening. But when God looks at you, he wants to bless you. That's God's grace. And then grace describes why God does anything good for us. It's because that's who he is. Because he wants to. So in what way is this favor from God unmerited? And what does that even mean? So here's an example. I recently told my son, Nate, he's nine years old. I said, buddy, I love you more than any boy in the whole world. And he immediately responded, why? What have I done for you? <laughs> I thought that was a great response. What would you say to that question? That's not how love works, is it? Definitely not the love between a parent and a child. You don't love the child because they did something for you. You love the child because you choose to love the child. You love the child because they're your child. It's definitely not because they did anything for you. Does a child earn their parents' love? Many of you are parents. Did your children have to earn your love? Of course not. When your new baby is born into the world, you love them more than you knew you could love anybody. But it's not because they did something for you. If your love was based on the works of the child, would you love them? I mean, a new baby spends most of their days sleeping, eating, crying, and messing their diaper. There's not a lot of reasons on that list to love the child. But you love them because that's not what the love is about. And I like that analogy because that's what grace is like. Grace is like love in the sense that it's not earned. God doesn't favor us because we've done something for him. God favors us because he chooses to favor us. God favors us because we're his children. If God's grace was a response to our works, 
He wouldn't be gracious at all. It's a good thing that his grace is not based on our works. He gives grace in spite of our works, not because of our works. This is obviously demonstrated in the story of Israel. If you want to open your Bible at this point, turn over to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 tells the story of Israel, which is basically a story of their unfaithfulness, and then concludes with a description of God's grace. Nehemiah chapter 9, I'll be reading verses 14 through 19. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Nehemiah says, You, that's the Lord, you, Lord, made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws. So in other words, he's saying, God, you told them what to do. By the hand of Moses, your servant, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you had sworn to them. So he's saying, God, you took care of these people. Verse 16, how did they respond? But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in the rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. So how did God respond to this? Nehemiah says, but you are God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. And so looking at verse 31 now, Nehemiah concludes, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, merciful and gracious, excuse me, gracious and merciful. Israel was evil, stubborn, disobedient, and Nehemiah says rebellious to the point of idolatry. Israel didn't even want God anymore. So they just made their own God. Why didn't God just destroy them? Why? It's because Nehemiah says God is gracious. He was merciful. He showed mercy and grace not because of who they were, but because of who he is. Man's nature, this applies to all of us, man's nature is generally evil, overcome by the lust of the flesh. But God's nature is gracious and merciful, preferring to bless and forgive. And so all of this, the conclusion of all of this, is to highlight the point that God's grace is not a wage for our good works. It's definitely not a payout for our righteous living. And if it was, we'd be broke. Romans chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debts. Grace is not offered because of our works. Now obviously, we are justified by our works, but this is also true, that we are not given grace because of our works. Grace is not a payment. We don't do anything that indebts God to give us grace. We do nothing 
that creates a debt that God then pays to us in the form of salvation. You know, in our human relationships, this sometimes happens. We do something, and then somebody owes us. This happens all the time. You go to work, put in your time, and then your employer owes you. Is that how it works with God? Do you go to work, put in your time, and then God owes you? Is that how that works? No, that's not how it works. That's not how our salvation works. That's not how grace works. That's not how mercy works. I was watching a movie with the kids this winter. Some of you will probably recognize this line. I was watching a movie with the kids this winter, and one of the characters had misbehaved and caused a whole lot of trouble. And uh, an old woman told him, this old woman covered in pigeons, don't take advice from anybody covered in pigeons, but this old woman who was covered in pigeons says to the little boy who'd misbehaved, did you know that a good deed erases a bad deed? I paused the movie and explained to the kids that is not how it works. (laughs) Could you imagine if a kid believed that that's how it works? You can do a bad thing as long as you're then prepared to do a good thing. It would be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't. And that's why the grace of God should be so precious to us. You know, I wonder if sometimes I've done this. I wonder if other people have done this. I think sometimes we imagine that at the end of our lives, as long as the good things that we've done just barely outweigh the bad things we've done, then we're safe. Then we're in a saved condition. But again, that's not how it works. Our good deeds do not cancel out the bad ones. Recently, not in a movie, uh, someone who had left the faith for several years and came back said to me, quote, I have a lot of making up to do. I don't know exactly what they meant by that, but it seemed like they were implying that they would have to work hard to recover from all of those lost years. And again, it doesn't work that way. And really, it's better for our sakes that it doesn't work that way. We comfort ourselves in thinking that by good works and faithfulness, we could just erase all of our sins and unfaithfulness. But it doesn't work that way. Not in our relationship with God and not even in our relationships with other people. I'll give you an example. If I offend my wife, which believe it or not has happened, if I offend my wife and hurt her feelings, no amount of good works and coffee is going to make the offense and hurt go away. Trust me, I've tried. And if you're a husband here today, you've tried too. (laughs) There is no nicer husband than the one who just offended and hurt his wife's feelings. Nothing I do, no good work, can in and of itself just make the hurt and the offense go away. Now, Of course, in repairing that situation, of course, I have to express regret. Of course, I have to change my behavior. And a caramel macchiato is going to go a long ways. But when my wife chooses to forgive me, why does she do that? Because she chooses to. You know, I cannot create a debt that she then owes me forgiveness. But, you know, sometimes we act like that, don't we? We hurt somebody else, and then when they are hesitant to forgive us, we act like now they're the offender because they're hesitant to forgive us. There's nothing we can do that makes an 
another person indebted to forgive me. When my wife forgives me, she does so because of her character and her goodwill, not necessarily because of mine. And so it is with God. Of course, we have to express regret for our sins. And of course, God expects a life of good works. Of course, God expects a change of behavior. But at the same time, there is nothing we can do that makes God indebted to forgive us. At no point does God owe us forgiveness. When God forgives us and saves us and the relationship is healed, it's because of his character and his goodwill, not ours. And that's God's unmerited favor. God's grace and mercy are manifestations of his personal sovereignty. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This verse sometimes gets complicated, but we don't need to do that. I think this verse simply means, why does God show mercy? Because he wants to. He gives mercy according to his own judgment. Mercy is not achieved through human will or human work. I really think it's the same point that we've been making. We can never create a situation where God owes us grace and mercy. And so that's grace, God's grace, his, unmet, his unmerited favor, a manifestation of his character given according to his good will towards us, not because of our works, not as a wage, and not because he is in some way indebted to us. So now that we've discussed this idea of grace with mercy there too, I want to apply all of this specifically to our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 summarizes one of the great pillars of the Christian faith, and I think most of you could probably quote this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by our own effort. We are not saved by our own works. Think about it like this. Remember that grace and mercy are attributes of God. So when we read this passage, we are saved by grace. What Paul is saying is that we are saved according to the character of God. We are not saved according to our own character or because of our own character. We are saved because of God's character and his love and favor towards us. Salvation is a gift that we didn't pay for, that we didn't earn, and that we don't deserve. And so Paul explains in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, When the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So why does God save us? Why does God wash us? Why does God renew us? Looking at this verse here in Titus chapter 3. Why does God renew us? We've made this point already, but the Bible is emphatic that salvation is not according to our works. Now, let me say again, that does not mean that therefore works have no role. There are people in the world who conclude that, that therefore works have absolutely no role in salvation whatsoever. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that we are not saved according to our works, 
but instead according to the mercy of God. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, even so. Then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Not according to the election of works, but the election of grace. And if by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And then another reference over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Paul said to Timothy, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So here's the way we look at this. God doesn't save us because we're working really hard. And I realize this can be a hard idea to digest. But God does not save us because we're working really hard. God doesn't even save us because we're pretty good people. That's not how the Bible describes salvation. God does not give us grace and save us because we're less sinful than someone else. Albert Barnes had an interesting quote on this topic. He said, the idea of doing something to merit salvation is one of the last things that a sinner ever surrenders. That's an interesting way of looking at the idea here, and it's probably true. We want the satisfaction of saying to ourselves, I did this. I won. I beat it. I fixed this problem. I accomplished this thing. Now, because of what I did, I'm worthy. You see the problem with that way of thinking. In reality, we can't even be saved until we acknowledge that we cannot fix this problem and that we're not worthy. God's grace is for broken, helpless sinners. We cannot understand the grace of God until we understand how lost we are without it. God could condemn us all to eternal hell and he would still be perfectly righteous. And that condemnation, listen to this point, that condemnation would be consistent with our nature. But God chooses not to condemn us because it wouldn't be consistent with his nature. And so David explains this idea in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That's a heavy thought in verse 10. You see what he's saying there? God has not dealt with us according to our works. God has not dealt with us according to our sins, because if he did, what would he do? He would destroy us. To be saved means that we are rescued from the consequences of our own actions. And sometimes maybe that idea gets lost. We talk about being saved, but what does that mean? Being saved means God rescues us from the condemnation of hell, even though we deserve it. And that's why we must be saved by grace. There's no other way except to be saved by grace. 
We can't be saved by our own righteousness because we aren't righteous. We can't be saved by our works because our works are evil. We can't be saved by the law because we break the law. Do you see the problem? There is no other way except to be saved according to the grace of God. I had a situation that I think is analogous to this in one of my courses I was teaching last fall. Every teacher has experienced this, so I'm sure you can relate to it if you've ever taught anybody. (laughs) One of my students was consistently underperforming on nearly all of the assignments and assessments. And as the semester was coming to a close, she had performed so poorly on so many assignments, it had become mathematically impossible for her to pass the class. We were at probably week 12 out of 16, and it was already mathematically impossible for her to pass the class. So what I'm saying is, even if she got 100% on every assignment for the last four weeks of the semester, even if she accumulated every possible bonus point, which by the way, in my classes, there aren't too many, but even if she accumulated every possible bonus point, she would still fail. There was no way to pass the class. Think about it like this. According to the rules of the course, she would fail. It was inevitable. And so I chose to create a way for her to pass the class. I chose to give her some grace. Now here's the truth. The truth is, she wasn't a hard worker. The truth is, she wasn't really trying. She wasn't even nice to me. Even after I gave her all of these second chances, she still gave me one of the worst course reviews I have ever received. And even now has told other professors that it's my fault that she's failing the program. The truth is, she did not earn the grace I gave her. This is kind of where the analogy breaks down. You know, she didn't like me and I didn't especially like her. Now, that's not how it works with the grace of God. She did not earn the grace I gave her. But think about this. If she earned it, would it have been grace? If she earned it, would it even have been mercy? If it was earned, then it wouldn't even be grace. I gave her a way to pass the class because I would prefer to pass her than fail her, even though, according to the rules, she deserved to fail. And most of this is true in our relationship with God. We're saved Because of God's personal desire to bless us and not destroy us, even though we deserve to be destroyed. Because according to the rules, we should fail. But God gives grace. At this point, I want to pause for any questions or comments. And I'll see if there's an evangelist in the room that can answer them. No questions or comments. Okay, let's carry on. Still thinking about how grace and mercy works in our salvation. Did you know that at least on some level, you're going to have to follow me on this thought for a second. Did you know that at least on some level, every step in our salvation is caused by the grace of God? Now, sometimes when we're describing salvation, this isn't wrong, but it might be incomplete. Sometimes when we're describing salvation, we describe God's part and our part. 
that God's part is grace and mercy and forgiveness, and then our part is the other things, right? Belief, confession, repentance, baptism into Christ, that there's God's part and our part. Now, there's a reason that we explain it that way, because that draws attention to the fact that God does all this, and we still have something to do. We still have to believe and obey the gospel. So that's what we're talking about when we say our part. And yet, at the same time, our part is still a manifestation of God's grace. Now, if that's a new idea to you, don't feel bad, because it's a new idea to me. Acts chapter 18, verse 27, says that the disciples believed through grace. That's one of those passages that you read, I have read. I've not been exactly sure what it meant, so I just kept on reading. Telling myself I'll figure it out later and then never figured it out later. So what does that mean? That the disciples believed through grace. Of course, it is by the grace of God that we even have something to believe in. So that's true. But maybe more than that, it is God's grace that enables us to believe. Even in believing the gospel, we are simply accepting a gift that's given to us. Faith itself is a manifestation of God's grace. Now, if you've ever talked to someone who follows the Reformed ideology, theology, that idea gets taken too far. That idea gets abused. And yet, I do think what I just said is true. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said it, obviously. That faith itself is still a manifestation of the grace of God. And this is why our belief in God is sometimes in the Bible described as a gift. It is something that you do. Believing in God is something that you do and must do, and God does not do it for you, right? It's not like God just grabs your conscience and believes for you. Otherwise, it's not you believing anymore. And yet, belief in the Bible is still described as a gift from God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, if you want to look at that passage, includes a phrase that points to this idea. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So this is true, that God chooses to save us. He chooses us to be sanctified and chooses us to believe. Of course, I have to cooperate in the process of believing. But the point I want us to take away from this is that belief is still a gift offered according to the favor of God. Consider the factors in your own life that led you to belief in the gospel. And I'd actually like you to think about that. What are the factors in your own life that personally led you to belief in the gospel? And how much of that really has to do with you personally? I think many of you probably have a story a lot like mine. What were the factors that led to my personal belief in the gospel? By God's grace, I was born into a family with Christian parents and Christian grandparents who taught me Christian values and raised me in a congregation of Christian people. I learned to believe in the gospel because of the godly people that God put in my life with the Bible that God put in my hands using the brain that God put in my skull. All I had to do was receive the grace given to me according to the pattern prescribed by God. 
And when you look at it that way, belief in the gospel certainly is a gift from God. I have to cooperate in that process, but I can't completely claim ownership for it. In my personal story, I was led to belief in the gospel because of the grace of God and all the good things and good people God put in my life. For people who aren't raised in a Christian family with Christian parents, with a history of reading the Bible, your story will sound completely different, but it still ends in the same way. Because of the grace of God, someone presented the gospel to you, and you chose to cooperate in that process. It's stated like this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now what Paul is saying there, his emphasis is that, well, not only do you get to be saved, you also get to suffer. And that's not exactly what we're talking about in this lesson, but he still makes that point that it has been granted to you to believe in the gospel. And again, we can't take this where the Reformed theology takes us. I have to cooperate in that process, and yet it doesn't change that grace still gives us the ability to believe. Repentance is like this too. Repentance is a byproduct of God's grace. Repentance, would it be possible without the grace of God? Is repentance possible without the grace of God? I don't think it is. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when the Jewish Christians heard of the conversion of the Gentiles, well, first off, they got mad about it because of their own bias. That's another subject for another time. But then eventually, after Peter explains the whole story to them, eventually, again, when the Jews learn of the conversion of the Gentiles, they conclude, quote, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This is another point where sometimes when we talk about repentance, we focus a lot on ourselves. And obviously there is a lot that we have to do. That's what repentance is, a change of life. And yet it's made possible, it's granted to us according to the grace of God. Think about it like this. Repentance is not given Excuse me, repentance is given and received. It is not gained or achieved. I want to say that again. Repentance is not given. There, I, I said it wrong again. If you're taking notes, or erase the last 10 seconds. <laughs> Let me start over. Repentance is given and received. It is not gained or achieved. If we think that repentance is a personal achievement, then I'm not sure if we've repented at all. And this is an idea that I have personally struggled with. Have you ever had sin in your life and you've told yourself, I've got to try harder? Now, that's not a wrong thought, but it's definitely an incomplete thought. Your personal effort, you personally trying harder, is not the only thing that leads to repentance. Repentance is granted as a gift of God. When we actually change it's because God was working in us. So why is this perspective so important? To remember that even on our side of salvation, that this is given to us according to the grace of God, that even our belief, even repentance, is a gift of God given according to his grace. Why is that perspective important? I think it's because this leads us to gratitude and helps us to avoid pride. We might say to ourselves, and I have said to myself, 
I worked really hard to get to where I am today. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever said that to yourself? I worked really hard to get to where I am today. Be careful with that thought, especially as it relates to our own salvation, especially as it relates to repentance, especially as it relates to conquering our own sins. You may have worked really hard, but God worked harder. God worked really hard to get you to where you are today. God brought you here. God keeps you here. And as soon as we start honoring ourselves, God will kick us out of wherever we are. This is exactly the attitude that can separate us from the grace of God. When we start giving ourselves credit for our salvation, when we start dwelling on how hard we've worked to get us to where we are. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4 is a passage we often quote in the context of the perseverance of the saints. Once in grace, always in grace. That's obviously not true because of what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. He says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Now, sometimes when we read that, we accurately conclude that what he's saying is you've dropped out of salvation. You're no longer in a saved condition. You've separated yourself from Christ if you are attempting to be justified by the law. But also think about the context of our discussion here today. What would it mean to fall from grace? It means to fall out of favor with God. If we want to be saved, we have to be living and breathing in the favor of God. So how do we fall from grace? We fall from grace when we try to justify ourselves by strict adherence to the law. Now think about this, though. Do we need to strictly adhere to the law? Well, yes, we do, of course. And yet we will fall from grace if we think, that, if we think that's how we are justified. We try to achieve a personal level of worthiness by our personal accomplishments. That's when we'll fall from grace. We fall from grace when we try to qualify ourselves rather than accepting our disqualification. Remember I said a few minutes ago that God's grace is for broken, helpless sinners. But it is only effective for people who acknowledge that they are, in fact, broken, helpless sinners. God's grace and mercy abound towards those who know that they need it. The more you know you need grace, the more you will receive grace. The more you accept you need mercy, the more mercy you will, in fact, receive. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. We won't read the entire story there, but this is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple to pray. And this story here in Luke chapter 18 represents two potential attitudes that we can have as it relates to our salvation. Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee, when he prayed, basically talked about how great he was, how obedient he was. He talked about all the great things that he did. And those things may have been true. Those things may have been true. But then Jesus explains the prayer of the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man 
went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The story of Paul is another picture of what God's grace will do to us when we know that we need it. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a passage. We'll read several verses. If you want to turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. We'll start with verse 12, actually. 1 Timothy 1, starting verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice what Paul says about himself. Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and he says he was proud of it. Paul wreaked havoc in the church, dragging Christians into prison. Paul caused innocent people to die. Paul received grace. God gives grace even to the chiefest sinners. God gives grace even to the worst among us. God's grace isn't limited to mostly righteous people. Sometimes we might think that, though, that we get grace because we're not so bad. It wouldn't be grace if that's how it worked. God's grace is much bigger than that. So do we understand God's grace? Do we understand how completely wholly dependent we are on God's grace. Do we understand that we need grace to the same extent that Paul needed grace? Do we have the spirit of the Pharisee or the spirit of the tax collector? The Christian faith is not about what you can do for God. The Christian faith is about what God has already done for you and what God will do through you. It is not about your character, it's about God's character and how he changes your character. And when we understand God's grace this way, there's nothing left to be proud of. Everything in our salvation melts into gratitude. Sometimes we say to ourselves, God helps those who help themselves. If you've ever said that, you're not exactly wrong. I've said that, and I'll probably say it again. God helps those who help themselves. But that's not quite the right way to look at our salvation. That's definitely not how grace works and not really how our salvation works. Go over to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. 
And think about this question. Is it true that God helps those who help themselves? Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. Christ did not die for righteous people. Christ didn't even die for pretty good people doing their best. That's exactly what this passage is trying to say. You might do that. If you're a human, you might do that. You might die for a righteous person. You might even die for a pretty good person. But that's not what Christ did. Christ died for us when we were still unrepentant sinners. And Christ died for people who will never be anything but unrepentant sinners. That's the depth and breadth of God's grace. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God gave grace to his enemies. God gave the life of his son to save the lives of his enemies. I wouldn't do that. Would you? I wouldn't. But God did. God gave the life of his son for his enemies. Who are God's enemies? Adolf Hitler, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, yes, and you, and me. And Jesus Christ died for all of us. Another passage we'll read is over in Ephesians chapter 2. We've already read a portion of this, but now we're going to start back in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 8. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes, which we've read already in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I'll give you another parenting analogy here. I know you've had this experience. Have you ever had something really special planned for your kids, like a vacation, a birthday party, something really fun, like going to the river. Maybe yesterday this happened. And then the kid really misbehaves. Again, I would not be surprised if this literally happened yesterday for some of these families. You've got this really special thing you want to do for your children, and they really blow it. Somebody was rude. Somebody didn't do their chores. Somebody hurt somebody else. Somebody let the horse out of the barn. They let the dog out of the cage. I don't know what it was, but the kid really misbehaves. And so they don't deserve to go, do they? 
They don't deserve that special thing. They deserve to be punished. But what did you do yesterday? You took him to the river anyway, didn't you? (laughs) You did that special thing anyway. Now, why do you do that? Is it because you're a softy? Is it because you're lazy as it relates to discipline? Probably not. You probably did that special thing anyway because you'd rather do something special for them than discipline them. Because the gifts you give your children are not always about their behavior. Those gifts are usually about your love for the child. And God's grace is like this. God had something really special planned for us, and we really messed things up. And more than that, we died, and we deserved it. But here's the thing. That's not the outcome that God wants. He would be righteous if he let us die and destroyed us. But that is not the outcome he wants. And so he raises us up from the dead and invites us anyway. There is an emotional issue I think we should sort through here. And this is the last thing we'll talk about before our break. There is an emotional issue here. All of this might to start, start to make us feel pretty pathetic, actually. It's really hard knowing that we created a problem, but we don't have the power to fix it. It's embarrassing, really. One time when I was a kid... Uh, I lost my baseball glove. I even knew where I lost it, and I could never find it. And here it was, whatever day of the week it was, and I didn't have my baseball glove, but it was time to go to baseball practice. And Dad took me to the truck. We got in the car. We started driving to baseball practice, and I don't have a glove. And there's nothing I can do to fix that problem. And all my brothers will relate to this. He does this thing. When he does something nice, he sort of throws it at you and then looks the other way. Well, that's exactly what he did. He had this Walmart bag with a baseball glove in it and threw it to me and looked the other way. Here you go, son. Right? Well, that's grace. I was feeling pretty pathetic in that moment. It was my fault the glove was lost. And I could do nothing to fix it. It's embarrassing. But God doesn't want you to feel this way as it relates to our salvation. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we accept our sins and our helplessness, and we finally turn back to God for help, God doesn't frown at you. God doesn't lecture you. God doesn't wag his finger at you. Like the father of the prodigal son, he runs out to meet you and embraces you. That's how grace works. We've got about three minutes where we could take a couple comments or questions. we got one back here. Hey, Dan. Good thoughts. Um, as I think about grace, you know, my default position that I commonly go to is thinking about the Father. And as you brought out some of the passages, particularly the one in Thessalonians, it talked about the role and the work of the Spirit as well. Yeah. 
may not have time to comment here, maybe after the break, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts in terms of how the Spirit works, both from our aspect on our side, as well as from God's side in the work of both mercy and grace. Sure. I'll make, I'll make one quick comment on that because that's a great point. The work of the Spirit is a perfect example of God's grace in our repentance. We're enabled to conquer the flesh. Paul explains this in detail in Romans chapter 8. We're enabled to conquer the flesh because of the Spirit. It's through the Spirit that we defeat the works of the flesh. And God doesn't just grab us and do that for us. And yet at the same time, we have to be willing participants. God works in us, and yet we have to put in work as well. And the work, the work is submitting to the influence of the Spirit. So that's a great point and something that definitely relates here. So I, uh, can you hear me all right? Oh, wow. There in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, I'm sure I'm like most others that look at this and see that, you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith and see that there's a part that God plays and a part that, that I play, the, the faith part. Right. But your comments about repentance also being uh, a gift from God made me wonder if maybe faith is the same way. And it seems to be supported uh, in Romans chapter 4 where uh, there's a uh, Paul writes about uh, the law beginning in verse 13 for the promise that he would be uh, the heir of the world has uh, not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So it seems as though maybe even our, our faith is a gift from God and is through grace. I agree completely. And again, this is one of those subjects that we don't want to take too far. Our faith is a gift from God. It's a product of God's grace. And yet I still have to choose to comply. I have to choose to be a participant in that. Great point. Our time is up for now. You've got a break. Thank you.